You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word that you would speak through it, that we might see what it means that Jesus is our great high priest and not a shadow of heavenly things, but the real thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 8. We actually may be able to work ahead today into chapter 9, which would be great because I do plan on getting through uh, Hebrews hopefully before uh, Memorial Day. Um, and that's me moving really fast. <laughs> and y'all laugh. Okay, chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is all is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so everyone remembers the last time we were together in Hebrews and we were talking about Melchizedek? <laughs> Remember that? Uh, that seems so long ago, but it's really important because actually, if you, wanna, if you wanted to, Paul is gearing up to talk about all this and he begins to talk about Jesus as the high priest way back in chapter 4. So he wants us to understand, the point is, is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Right? That's the point that he's trying to make. Why is this such a big point? Because who these Hebrew Christians are, right? they're Jewish believers in Jesus who are experiencing persecution, uh, they're experiencing um, uh, just sort of the general malaise that a Christian would experience. Uh, it's hard to be a Christian in Greek culture, much less any culture, or even as a Jew in Greek culture. And so they are really having a hard time, and some of them are even to the point of being willing to forsake their Christianity and to go back to just being Jewish. 
Now, a lot of us in here will think, that's not possible. You know, if you're a real Christian, then you would never, ever think about doing that. And yet, we do it every single day. If you want to see how I do it, come watch how I drive. Um, Lauren told me, she said, you need to know that you honked at a parishioner in Cahaba Heights and went like this to them <laughs> when they were pulling out, and you need to know that. And I said, I'm trying to think of who the idiot was and what they were doing when they pulled out in front of me. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, the answer to that is, uh, that's me. I, I have real issues when I get behind the wheel. I'm not a road rage kind of guy, but I just think everybody is a terrible driver, and, uh, except for me. And, uh, and since they've shut 5029 down, or 20, 2950, what do we call it now? 2059, 2059. Um, uh, everybody's running red lights downtown. Right? I mean, it's, 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 got, it's total Wild West uh, because you've just got to be able to figure out how to get across town. And so there's a part of me that, that really wants to do what happened in South Carolina when somebody approached me and said, you really ought to be a chaplain with the state troopers. I'm like, what does that mean? And they said, well, if there's a tragic car accident or something like that or they need some sort of pastor, they'll call you at any time of the day or night and you come out to the scene. And I said, well, that sounds like a lot. And I said, and furthermore, how am I supposed to get onto the scene when I arrive? And they said, oh, you just show your badge. I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> right? that, that's what I want. Right? I want the badge. So it's not all that uh, far-fetched for us to say or to see why these Hebrew Christians would slip back into their old patterns of behavior because they're much easier. They're easier, and quite frankly, in their context, they're more culturally acceptable. And so there's a couple things going on. Paul is talking a lot about we're on our way to heaven, and we want you to go with us, which means there's a lot of exhortation, there's a lot of encouragement. He talks a lot about perseverance. But then, ultimately, the greatness and all-surpassing knowledge of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and how glorious he is. Which is why time and time again the author of Hebrews will say, consider Jesus. Look at him. Don't look around you. Don't look internally. Don't navel gaze. Look at Jesus. Consider him. Now why is it that the author of Hebrews has turned the attention on Jesus being our great high priest? Because this is language that the Hebrew Christians would understand. They would understand uh, the temple ritual. It's, uh, they would understand uh, what is required of the priesthood. And we unpacked a lot of that when we were talking about Jesus uh, being a priest uh, like unto... Actually, Melchizedek is a priest like unto Jesus, is what the author tells us. Uh, but Melchizedek being a shadow or a forerunner of the priesthood that is Jesus. And you remember what we said about that? Why that's a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood? Because remember the Levites, they started their ministry at 25. They did sort of a five-year curacy. And then at 30, they could actually do the big boy stuff. And then at around 55, or around 50, really, they hung it up. They, they were done. They, they moved to Bluffton, South Carolina, and called it a day. So you have that. But the priesthood of Melchizedek is forever. It's, it has no beginning, and it has no end. 
And the Bible goes out of its way to not mention uh, that Melchizedek had a mom and dad, not because he didn't have a mom and dad, but because of already God speaking to the writer then that this was going to come up later. Avoid that information because what we want to show you is that Jesus, because he is with, it's not about his parentage. It's not being descended from uh, Aaron or anybody that would require, that was required for the Levitical priesthood. Right? This is actually a priesthood that has been given to Jesus by God. And therefore, he's the ultimate priest. Now, what does a priest do? Anybody? Sacrifices. That's what a priest does. That's what the word means. Now, we get into trouble here. And by here, I mean the language that we use at the Advent and often in Anglicanism because we keep the word priest. But actually... Uh, the Greek word from which we get priest is presbyter, which means elder. So anytime you read in the Bible where it says, you know, go read, the book, go read Paul's letter to Titus, it talks about appointing elders. Well, it says appointing presbyters. So for us, that's what that word means, that actually that word has no connotation with sacrifice. But now the Old Testament priesthood, does have a, a, a sacrificial component, exclusively so. Right? That's what the Old Testament priests did. They offered offerings uh, for sin. They uh, often uh, offerings for thanksgiving. And it was a round-the-clock operation that they had there on the Temple Mount. That was the primary reason why you had the temple. But he wants them to know that what you don't need is an earthly priest. Because not only are the priests sacrificing, why are they sacrificing? Because they're mediators between human beings and God. They're the go-between. Now there are times when we do need that. Not in terms of sacrifice, but in terms of God's word. Remember when they're out in the wilderness and God speaks, he's thundering up on the mountain, and, uh, and everyone's ready to go up on the mountain, and they say, actually, Moses, you, you go. You go, and then come back and tell us what he says. Right? And there are, there's a need, as we see in the New Testament, for preachers. Right? Paul talks about this in, in Romans, uh, the need for preachers to mediate uh, God's word. It doesn't mean you can't have a relationship with Jesus uh, apart uh, from preachers, but Paul does say in Romans 10 that if we're going to be saved, there must be those who tell us about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And that's a mediation, isn't it? I'm introducing you to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you about Jesus Christ. But I'm passing you on to him. Where in the temple ritual, the focus really was on the priest doing the sacrifice. And then you felt pretty good. So this is the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. But Jesus is a high priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Where is Jesus now? He's in heaven. Right? This is, this is where things got rocky at the time of the Reformation. Because the Roman Catholic Church taught that Jesus is physically located where? Up there, right? In 
uh, in the bread and in uh, the wine. And therefore, even to this day, you still have Roman Catholic churches that practice Eucharistic adoration. that come in and revere the sacrament. And if Jesus is really in there, you should probably do that. Um, I remember doing communion uh, one time with a guy uh, who was a very committed Anglo-Catholic uh, who held a Roman Catholic understanding of Holy Communion and, um, and was pretty strict about it. And um, in, at their church, I was helping them administer communion. And instead of using wafers, they used pita bread. And as I was administering the bread, I, I kind of saw something out of the corner of my eye and flipped it over. And the entire side was covered in mold. So I put it back up on the table and I went and, uh, and of course the rubric says that you're supposed to consume all of the bread and said, uh, so we got up there with my friend and I said, well, Tom, this is where the rubber meets the road, brother. What are you going to do with this moldy Jesus? And you know what he said? He said, well, Jesus got himself in there. I guess he can get himself out. Well... So that was the big point, that, that because if Jesus really is there, uh, it's a sacrifice, and what kind of sacrifice is it? And some, the Roman Catholics would pull back a little bit, and they wouldn't say, it's not, it's not Calvary all over again, but it's a representation of the sacrifice of Jesus to God the Father as a reminder to him of what his son has done for us. But the author of Hebrews says what? He's right next to him. He bears the scars. And furthermore, when it comes to the sacraments that we have in the Christian tradition, they're not sacrifices in that they're from men and women to God. Sacraments are what? The other way. From God to us. It represents to us as a reminder what Jesus did for us upon the cross. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, your high priest is in heaven. You don't need an earthly priest. And he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent. Because where did, uh, this word actually means tabernacle, uh, but where did the priest minister in the temple courts? The holy of holies, right? That's where they went in and there were... uh, Lots of things in there. Everybody's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, The Ark was in there, and on the Day of Atonement, they would go in, and they would sprinkle the blood uh, on uh, on the mercy seat there, uh, that they would go into uh, this tabernacle, into into this uh, sanctuary, which had within it the Holy of Holies where the Ark was. And how did they know how to build all that? Were they just sitting around saying, you know what would look really good over here? Some lampstands. How do they know? Well, it says right here, doesn't it? He told them, right? See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain in verse 5. So God said, I want you, this is what I want it to look like. This is how I want it built. Now, but he says it's a copy. Now this goes back to the type that we talked about in Melchizedek. The tabernacle on earth is a copy. Or as he says here, it's a shadow. Where's the real thing? 
in heaven. And because of Jesus, who is the true high priest, who is the true tabernacle, why are you spending your time running after shadows when you have the real thing in the Lord Jesus Christ? They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, not as the real thing, because as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now I'm going to jump ahead here. There's a very specific word that is used to talk about what the blood of the animals accomplished in the Old Testament when it comes to sacrifice. And that is that the blood covered, covered the sins of the people. But what does the blood of Jesus do? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He remits them. That's the word we use in our, our, in our liturgy. The remittance of sins. So the sacrifices in the Old Testament were only effective in so much as they covered the sin. But when did you have to go to the temple for sacrifices? Pretty regularly, actually. Right? This was kind of a big deal when they were, uh, if you didn't live in Jerusalem. And so that was one of the reasons why in these big festivals people would come in. And why uh, they had money changers that, Jesus, that, is that are talked about where Jesus turns over their tables. Uh, because they're coming from near and far in order to worship at the temple and to do uh, sacrifice for various and sundry things. And so it's a regular ongoing operation. But the, the author of Hebrews says, if that worked, why does it keep on going? Well, the answer is, it's not enough to do away with sin. It can only cover it. Now, when this building was built, uh, a lot of thought went into it. And I know that, you know, actually... I don't know if you knew this, it sat here kind of halfway done for a really long time. So much so that people in Birmingham would write letters to the bishop and letters to the advent saying, are y'all ever going to finish your building? Uh, and then the pine building burned down and that was kind of an, ins that instigated the finishing of the building. <clears throat> but when it was, I don't remember when this all came up here, but it's very smart. So if you look at our windows here, what's the window on the left? Right, the birth of Jesus, right, we have the birth of Jesus, but what's the window underneath? Have you ever seen that? It's kind of creepy if you ever come up for communion, you want to scare your children, go on the left side. It's Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden. And the first advent of the Lord, right above it. Now what's, on the, what's over here all the way on the far right? Jesus coming back, the second advent. What's the name of our church? Church of the Advent, right? Now what's in the middle? The Lord's Supper, right? The Last Supper. <clears throat> and what is that? It's the institution of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. Do you see that that's the initiation of the new covenant between 
but, uh, remembering the fall of, of sinful humanity, the first advent of Jesus, he institutes the new covenant that says, here's how God is going to relate to us from here on out, and it's through my cross and my resurrection. It's through my blood, which not, doesn't cover sins, it remits them. I'll tell the story I always tell on this. Katie Schultz's 16th birthday party, they served grape juice. Who serves grape juice, uh, period, much less at a 16th uh, birthday party. Mrs. Schultz had this new beautiful oriental rug and uh, I was goofing around as I'm prone to do and I spilled my grape juice all over the brand new rug. And I remember vividly Mrs. Schultz um, clearing everybody out of the room but I was sort of still standing on the edge praying, Lord, may it come up, may it come up, may it come up. And she went and got some stuff, whatever she did, and she was down there scrubbing the rug and she kept saying to herself, it's only a rug, it's only a rug. I thought she was saying it to me, but it was clear she was just saying it to herself. Uh, it's only a rug. And quite frankly, a lot of it came up to the point that you really have to look at it. I've seen it within the past 10 years. Um, uh, you have to really look hard to be able to see that it was there and she's placed a table over it. And so you kind of have to know what you're looking for. Right? That's covering up. That's the old covenant. Uh, every time I, the last time I walked in the room about 10 years ago, uh, and it had happened several years before that, um, no one else could really see it, but that stain screamed out at me because I knew that it was still there. It was covered, but I knew that it was there, and so do the other people involved. Even the person who had tried to cover it up. But do you understand that in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the stain of sin is removed completely as if it was never, ever there. It's not simply covered up, it's remitted, which is actually more powerful than forgiveness, isn't it? I mean, I know remittance is an old word, but it's a really good word. Because it's one thing for Mrs. Schultz to say to me, and she did say this, Andrew, I forgive you. But behold, your sin is ever before you. She may have forgiven me, but I was still dealing with the guilt and the consequences. What Jesus says is not only do I forgive you, I remit it, I take it away, I lay down my life. My blood makes it clean. So the author of Hebrews is saying this new covenant that is instituted by Jesus' blood is far superior and far more excellent than the covenant that was made to our father Abraham or any of the other covenants. And of course, those covenants and even the layout of the temple, the tabernacle, all of those pointed to what? The covenant that was coming. Right? We talked about this. Even little tiny things like the passage that we see from Numbers that Jesus quotes in John chapter 3 when the snakes got loose in the camp. And they began biting the Israelites. And the Lord said, take the rod, fix a bronze serpent upon it, and anyone who gets bit by a snake and looks at the rod will be saved. And then Jesus in John chapter 3 says, just as that serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up as well. You see, the entire Old Testament is pointing towards you. These aren't stretches. These aren't, well, you know, that's, that's a bit of a stretch. It's, it's so obvious in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. 
And the author of Hebrews is trying to make that plain to the Hebrew Christians. Do you not see it? Do you not see the Passover lamb? We talked about the Passover. The Passover lamb that was slain and the blood over the mantle of the doorway so the angel of death would pass over. When was this supper instituted? On the night of the Passover. And there on the table would have been the lamb that was slain, whose blood was placed over the mantle. But who's at the table now? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see it? This is what Hebrews is about, is pointing to Jesus as the author and perfecter, the pioneer of our faith. And this new covenant promise that we have in him, that he puts the law, our, his laws into our minds and writes them on our hearts, that I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach one as his neighbor but an, or a brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now what does he mean by that? Because now, even though certainly people in the Old Testament had a relationship with the living God, but with Jesus' death on the cross and with his resurrection, something has changed. I mean, that's why we call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you actually hear it um, in our communion liturgy. Testament is just another word for what? Covenant. Right, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the New Covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So there's a new covenant that comes in, which means that God is, is relating differently to his people because of who Jesus is. Because before, the sins were simply covered, but now we have access to the Father in the way that we didn't. And on the day that Jesus died, what happened at the temple? And where was that veil? And the Right. Holy of Holies, rent in two. On that day, all of that became obsolete. All of it. It was pointless. It was even useless. Now that's not very nice to say that, especially if you are people who have been doing it for thousands of years. But the author of Hebrews wants us to understand the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ who takes the burden of the covenant upon himself. One of the most vivid images of making a covenant in the Old Testament is um, cutting the heifer in half and you would take the cow and cut it in half and put the two halves off to the side and you would walk through it in between the two halves, basically saying, may it be unto me if I break the covenant as it was on this cow. And we thought about introducing that to marriage services here at the Advent, um, uh, just, just to make a point. Um, but like the lamb... Uh, it's all on Jesus. He takes it all. He pays for it all. And so all you're going through is empty ritual if you're trying to do anything to reconcile yourself to God. Now, I don't think anybody's out there slaying lambs or goats or uh, still looking for the red heifer. Uh, but we still do little things that we think are going to earn favor with God and are going to make up for any way that we've slipped up. 
And they tend to really manifest themselves this time of year. And some of this stuff you think might be blasphemous, but it's true. Things like, God will bless me and like me more if I go to church more often. The author of Hebrews would say, not true. God will love me and bless me more if I prayed more. Not true. Because of Hebrews. God uh, would bless me and like me more if I was a better person. On 280. In Cahaba Heights, dealing with idiots. Thanks, Lauren, in the back. Not true. But here's the thing. When God gets a hold of your life and begins to work in your heart, you want to be in fellowship with him. You, you want to be near him. You want to go to church. You want to spend time. Now, there are times when I get up in the morning and I don't want to pray and I don't want to spend time in God's word. And I don't think that it necessarily has to be the morning when anybody does that. Uh, but the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is I do feel bad when I act like a complete idiot on the roadway. And I realize it's a terrible witness. What in the world is wrong with me? And so is the answer then, try harder, go to anger management classes. I mean, they wouldn't hurt, probably. Did someone say they're in Hoover? Uh, or Uber, just Uber. No, then I'm yelling at the guy in the front seat, being like, don't let that guy speed up. He should know Third Avenue. You've got to be in the middle lane if you're getting on 280. Nice try, buddy. Um, no. Uh, those ultimately aren't what's going to change or transform the human heart. It's Jesus Christ and him alone that has the power to transform, and that is outside of ourselves. And so that's the new covenant that God makes with us, that he's going to give us a new heart. He's not going to simply scrub up the old one. This is, this is David created me a clean heart, oh God. He doesn't say, hey God, will you take this heart and just clean up the spots that, that aren't that great? but actually realizing we need an entirely new heart that changes our disposition and we actually are turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and we're focused on him and we look to him for our salvation and the remittance of our sins and the freedom that comes through him. Questions? If you were that person in Cahaba Heights, I am really sorry. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've been, I've been shamed by it, and I have a really terrible habit. There was a, somebody in the neighborhood, we have chickens that got out. This is confessional. And the thing would be, it would be a lot easier if I weren't so daggone funny, um, because this person came over and said, your chickens are in my yard. And I was upset about that because I thought, good gracious, I don't want the chickens in her yard. I wouldn't want anybody else's chickens in my yard. And so uh, I went over, and I said, well... And this person said, well, you know, there are coyotes in the neighborhood and uh, the coyotes could get them. And I said, well, that sounds like natural selection to me. And this person said, no, it sounds like bad parenting to me. <laughs> to which I said, oh, no, their parents have been long dead. We ate them months ago. Um, just not helpful. Not helpful at all. All right, Hebrews, anyway. Shannon. Jesus calls us to, to live like him. Now, not that we can ever quite do it, but as opposed to worrying about 
um, theological details. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I was trying to put those together with what you just said, and it, it's, uh, I think that's important. Can you comment on that? Yeah. Um, try to live more like Jesus than, than to uh, have certain theological convictions. Um, I think that's backwards. Uh, because when the truth of something sinks down deep in your heart, that begins to change your behavior, right? Because your convictions dictate how you live. And I've one, I did hear someone say something similar that, that live the way that you want to live and the convictions will follow. That is a total misunderstanding of human nature. It, it will never, ever work that way because then it just becomes you... Trying, it becomes all about you. Um, now that doesn't mean that, um, that we shouldn't be more like Jesus, but what it does mean that when it comes to the Christian faith is that it's God impressing upon you the conviction of who you are, but above all who Jesus, his son, is and living life in him, which is why the author of Hebrews isn't talking a lot about behavior. It's laying hold of the truth. It's grounding your life in the convictions of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, knowing that when that's impressed in your heart, that your actions are going to follow that. And so um, we can debate over whether or not the, the heart follows the head or vice versa, uh, but, but certainly Paul in Romans spends a great deal of time talking about uh, Christianity uh, in terms of not simply intellectual assent, but the mind uh, grabbing hold. And that's the, that's the great transformation that happens in the tr Christian life, and it's used time and time again. It's the transformation or the renewing of your mind. It's thinking differently rather than simply acting differently. When Paul says, it's not I who sin, but the sin that dwells within me, can you kind of unpack that? Yeah, in the next 30 seconds. Thank you, David. Um, it's not I, but the sin who dwells in me. Well, it's the old Adam. Uh, it's, it's that part of us. You know, we're not going to be who God means for us to be until we behold him face to face. And if the Christian journey is anything, it's realizing more and more our need for a Savior. And the old Adam is still there. The way Luther talked about it was that we're simuluses et peccator, that we're this mix of righteousness that's been imputed to us, but also sinfulness. The difference is that the Christian is able to say, it is the sin within me, that are actually able to differentiate, this is what I don't want to be, and this is what I don't want to do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The unbeliever, the person who thinks they can do it in their own strength, is just, eh, I need to work on it. Uh, it's just, you know, I've got some rough edges. But the Christian actually understands the insidious nature of sin. And so, but with that, it's not trying to stamp it out. It's looking more and more to Jesus. Lord, save me from this thorn in my side. And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. But weakness that God's power might be made manifest. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.